This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. And co-hosting this edition, I'm Linda Odiambo. Worldwide, malnutrition remains a persistent challenge and many countries are experiencing the triple burden of malnutrition that covers undernutrition, micronutrient deficiencies and also obesity. Nutrition is key to the achievement of the UN's 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. But unfortunately, with less than eight years to meet the SDGs, the achievement of its nutrition-related indicators remains a challenge. Nearly one in three people in the world didn't have access to adequate food in 2020. In Africa, just under 800 million people were facing moderate or severe food insecurity. And that situation is made worse by a triple crisis, COVID-19, climate change and conflict. A healthy diet is the foundation for good nutrition, human health and well-being. A diet deficient in macro and micronutrients can impede physical and cognitive development and economic productivity. Agriculture is of fundamental importance to good nutrition. Indeed, the sector is in charge of food production, ensuring safe, diversified and sustainable food supplies. It is also one of the main employment sectors for the majority of the active population in Africa. Small producers who represent the majority of the agricultural workforce are among the most affected by food insecurity and malnutrition. They face challenges in accessing profitable and sustainable income generating opportunities. Investing in nutrition through agriculture is not only socially responsible, but also sound development policy and good economics. IFAD is committed to enhance nutrition by investing in nutrition-sensitive agriculture and food systems and improving the quality and diversification of the diet of its beneficiary rural population. IFAD's primary objective is to ensure that acceptable, diverse, nutritious and safe foods adequate to meet the dietary needs of people of all ages are available and affordable at all times. IFAD does this by mainstreaming nutrition across its work to make sure that nutrition continues to remain high on the development agenda. In this podcast, Linda, along with colleagues in West and North Africa, are taking us on a journey through the nutrition landscape for small-scale farmers across the continent. Moving on from nutrition, also in podcast 34, we take a trip down to Lesotho. Here, we see what is being put in place to better understand the climate impact of livestock farming and how to reduce those emissions. We take the second part of our series focusing on youth as we talk to Andri Gashayija, Managing Coordinator for the Youth Agribusiness Hub in Rwanda. Then we have our final visit to the good people at the Global Donor Platform, where we'll be hearing from IFAD's Associate Vice President, Satu Santala. 
And finally, as part of our series of interviews from our research and impact assessment teams, we take a look at a project in Tamil Nadu in India. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. You can subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Linda Odiambo in Nairobi, and with me is Brian Thompson in Rome. To kick off this podcast, we spoke to Joyce Njoro, IFAD's lead on nutrition, for an overview of the situation in Africa. I asked Joyce about the outlook for Africa. So in terms of outlook or 2030 uh, agenda, Africa is significantly off track to achieve the zero hunger target. So in the State of the Food Security Report 2021, hunger in Africa was at 19.1% of the population in 2018. This means more than 250 million people were undernourished. And this was an increase uh, up from 17.6% in 2014. And looking at this in the context of the world prevalence, we can see that this is almost double the, 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 the world prevalence of hunger. And it is the highest among all the regions in the world. When you look at food insecurity, out of the 2 billion people suffering from food insecurity, 675 million live in Africa. And there is an uneven distribution of this because this is just an average for the entire continent. But if we look down and we look deeper, we'll see that different regions carry the burdens of, of food insecurity and also hunger disproportionately, particularly the Middle and the Eastern Africa regions. And East Africa countries are experiencing the greatest levels of food insecurity in terms of total population affected. And who is affected? Mostly, you'll find it is women and also people who live in the rural, rural populations. Africa is still off track to achieve the 2025 and 2025 targets for child stunting and low birth weight, and as well as anemia. But we see that there is progress, however, uh, on exclusive breastfeeding, but it is we are still not on track uh, for the 2030 uh, agenda. So starting, uh, generally we see there's some improvement, uh, but the rate of improvement is not adequate for us to beat the targets, the 2030 targets. And Sub-Saharan Africa is the only sub-region in the world with a rising number of started children uh, from 51.2 million in 2012 to 52.4 million in 2019. Wasting, on the other hand, the prevalence in Africa is 6.4%. And this is against a global target of 5%. So we can see that we are still not there. And the, the Southern Africa sub-region is, is the only region where we are, we are below the 5% global target. Uh, for children overweight, Africa is at 4.7%. Uh, again, it's a global average of 5.6%. So we can say we are doing well, but we still see there the are high pockets of concentration of overweight in children in North, North and Southern Africa. Then lastly, when it comes to low birth weight, we have a target of 30%, uh, but then we still see that uh, all regions in Africa are below the global average because we are at 14.6%, except Western Africa, which is at 15.2%. So in general, I would say that urgent action is needed because we are actually off track on almost all the targets uh, for 2030 agenda. Maybe we could just touch a bit around the challenges that we are facing that is causing us to lag behind these uh, targets. Well, there are a myriad of challenges 
But for now, I would like to zero in on the food systems uh, because of, on the food systems challenges. And particularly the reason why I want to look at the food system is that one billion people, and many of them are, who are women, cannot afford a basic healthy diet in Africa. And which means that the food systems are basically incapable of feeding all the people in a sustainable manner. So in terms of challenges, I would focus on three main challenges. The, the ones we, we, we call them the three C's, climate change, conflicts, COVID-19 pandemic. So let's look at climate change. Climate change does affect all dimensions of food, food, food security. That is the physical availability of food, its economic and physical accessibility, its use, and the stability of these three dimensions over time. Hmm? And so how does this effect come in? One, because 70% of agriculture, agriculture globally is rain-fed. So that means then we are uh, open to the vagaries of changes of weather patterns. Then the crop failure, which affects livelihoods, food security, and nutrition. Water availability is another issue. We need water for irrigation to produce food. We need water for human use, washing, cooking, drinking, and food processing. Then when you have adverse weather conditions, then you get infrastructure loss. So that cuts off some populations from markets and also from health services and other services, social protection services. The second challenge is conflicts, civil wars, and political fragility. In the past decade, conflicts have increased in number and complexity. Conflicts disrupt day-to-day -day functions that include farming, uh, jobs, schools, services, markets, and also cause displacement of people. While conflicts could be internal to a country, we are also seeing that also conflicts in other countries because of the, the way the world is interconnected can also have remote effects in other, in other far-flung countries. For example, the, the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict, which has caused shortages of commodity supplies, it has caused inflation and food prices, and because of the, of the cost of agricultural input and also the cost of energy. So generally, conflicts will directly affect food, nutrition, and security in almost the same way as all the, the other crises would affect the, the, the two factors. Then thirdly, the COVID-19 pandemic, and I think we have all experienced this, and the COVID-19 really brought out the, the many issues or the many challenges of our, of our food systems. Uh, I think we have all experienced this. This included the breakdown of the food supply chains, labor and job losses, and, and also the, the impact of the measures put forward by governments to reduce the spread of the infection of COVID-19. But the real impact of COVID-19 on the rural poor and the small-scale farmers is yet to be known. And we are really waiting to see maybe the, the upcoming studies for us to really understand what the real, what the real impact is. You've given us the challenges. You've just highlighted the challenges. Kindly tell us if there are any opportunities to change this narrative. Yeah, so I, I, I think we also have a number of opportunities, and particularly because there's an increasing awareness, not only for governments, but even for different stakeholders about the food system challenges, particularly because of last year when we had the, food, the UN, food, UN food systems, which has really brought about the conversations on the, on the food systems. And also the COVID-19, which also brought bear all the different, uh, all the, all the different uh, challenges of the food systems. So this increasing awareness is also pushing for governments to also take a political stand and also bring out political will 
And we've seen this is happening in many countries. There's a political will to try and look for solutions to address the food system's challenges. So I see maybe there are, I, I can see three examples where we see this political will. One is the UN food systems, national pathways. Following the, the different dialogues that happened last year, which brought different stakeholders together, the countries are trying to look for food systems transformations to help them reach the, the, the sustainable development goals. So countries are developing strategies, are coming up with specific and measurable national goals, action plans to address the food systems challenges. And this is really commendable because these are really tailored solutions, context specific for each country and, and aligning different stakeholders to one goal. So this is, this is something that we need to commend governments for that and the other stakeholders at the country level. Then secondly, the nutrition for growth commitments. Towards the end of last year, many countries have signed up to the nutrition for growth compact. Uh, and this now actually includes 331 new nutrition commitments, which is made by a total of 156 stakeholders across 66 countries. So stakeholders include 70 government departments and ministries, 10 international organizations, six donor organizations, as well as the private sector, and 44 civil society organizations, and six academic research institutions. And I believe by now we have more than this because this is the numbers as we had for last year. Then thirdly, the AU has prioritized 2022 as a year of nutrition, and this will help mobilize governments at the continental level to take action on nutrition take action on the commitments they've made for the nutrition for growth, take action on the UN food systems, and take action on their local action plans to address the nutritional challenges that they faced within their own context. Thank you for that, Joyce. That was Joyce Joro from EFAD. Up next, we hear from a nutrition extension officer with the Malawi Ministry of Agriculture. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Linda Odiambo in Nairobi, and with me is Brian Thompson. Governments are signatories to the Sustainable Development Goals and custodians of policies that can help accelerate the achievement of the SDGs. Our reporter, Excelo Sidana, spoke to Sylvia Mapanje, the Assistant Chief Agricultural Extension Officer responsible for nutrition in the Ministry of Agriculture. She told us what the government of Malawi is doing to support the achievement of nutrition-related targets, the challenges they face, and the opportunities that exist for them. She also highlighted the partnership with IFAD and how the investments are making a difference. My name is Sylvia Mabanje. I'm the Assistant Chief Agriculture Extension Officer responsible for nutrition in the Ministry of Agriculture under the Department of Agriculture Extension Services in Lilongwe, Malawi. So you are government in a way? Yes. As government, you are a custodian of nutrition policies. What is being done to promote nutrition within the agriculture sector in Malawi? Yeah, um, in terms of nutrition in the agriculture sector, we have a number of policies that uh, guide us in the implementation of the activities, and uh, one of it is the uh, national agriculture policy, and uh, the priority areas for nutrition include promotion of production and utilization of uh, diverse nutritious foods. 
So on this issue, I think uh, there are a number of strategies that uh, we are also following to make sure that uh, we are in line with our policy. And uh, IFAD, under the SAP project, I think has assisted us a lot in this area because there are some strategies that we are following under SAP, which include the integrated homestead farming approach, uh, which also focuses on production and utilization of these uh, diverse and nutritious foods. Another area that the policies that we are following, promoting in terms of nutrition, is the access to nutritious and diverse foods on the markets. So uh, SAP also has assisted us a lot in this area because uh, we have managed to establish a number of uh, savings and loan groups that uh, make sure that uh, people have access, the finances to access foods that they cannot produce on their own. Our policies and strategies also, we are focusing on biofortification, uh, consumption of biofortified foods uh, for the communities, uh, because they are high in nutrient content, and uh, this one we are also doing quite a lot. And uh, we are also in the area of nutrition education, and there are a number of activities that we do in Malawi to make sure that nutrition education is taking place. Uh, for example, the cooking demonstrations, the food displays, and the open days. You said nutritious food. How different is nutritious food from food? Food encompasses everything <laughs> that people can eat. And we know that in the diversity of the different foods that we have, there are others that are not rich in nutrients. So uh, because we know the issue in Malawi is um, malnutrition and nutrition specifically, so we try to encourage people so that they should choose the highly nutritious foods that are high in nutrients. Those are the foods that they should prioritize as opposed to the other foods that are not nutrient dense. And in a nutshell, how is government investing in nutrition and how important is investing in nutrition to say? Uh, government is uh, really uh, investing in nutrition through different interventions and programs that are taking place in the country. The policies and strategies that we have assist us a lot to lobby within our partners to invest in nutrition. For example, we also have the agriculture sector food and nutrition strategy that was developed. And this one helps us to bring together the partners that can invest in nutrition in the country. And we know that this is important because only people that have a good nutrition status, they are the ones that can work even in the agriculture labor force. So really, government is giving priority to nutrition and it's investing a lot in this. Challenges are everywhere. As government, what challenges do you often encounter in implementing new activities? Um, in terms of nutrition, I think quite a lot depends on the behavior change. We need to change the behaviors of people in the way they do their things, in the way they consume food. So this one is a challenge because behavior is not easy to change. and. We still have some areas where people need to change in order to make sure that uh, they change their um, eating habits and uh, production habits so that uh, they should diversify. So this is one of the challenges that uh, we face uh, uh, when we are dealing with people. And uh, you find that we may do well in other areas, for example, in nutrition education, in the production, but maybe we are not uh, there in terms of processing. 
So we also have challenges in terms of processing, probably infrastructure, the small equipment that the, the people can use in the households to process these foods and be able to have the diversified foods and also to have income towards improving nutrition. On top of that, we also know that we may have partners to support us, government may invest, but you find that still because of growing population, uh, the funding is not enough most of the times. So these are some of the challenges that we face. Uh, while the challenges are there, uh, there should be some opportunities as well. What are the existing opportunities which, if utilized, could help accelerate the achievement of nutrition policies. We are talking about nutrition policies in this interview. Yes. Um, opportunities are there. For example, like I said, we have different partners, including IFAD, which is supporting the country in implementing the policies that we have put in place. And upon implementation of this, we have the capacity building. For example, IFAD assisted us in training frontline workers. So this is a capital that we don't take it for granted because we know it's there and we can utilize it so that we should use these frontline workers to continue bringing the activities and the programs that we need to come on the ground. So this is a big opportunity that we have. As I already said, that funding is also it's a challenge. So it becomes difficult for us to take care of these extension workers in terms of maybe mobility. But we have stakeholders, as I said, which include even IFAD, which provided the mobility for these extension workers so that they can be mobile and be able to deliver uh, in a way that we want. And we also have good linkages. We try to have good linkages with different stakeholders, different partners who are also engaged in different activities. For example, the agribusiness sector so that we make sure that we work together, we take advantage of the synergies that are among us. In summary, can we comfortably say that Malawi is progressing in terms of nutrition policies and the implementation of those policies? Can we comfortably say that? I can comfortably say that we are really uh, moving forward. That was Sylvia Mapanje from the Malawi Ministry of Agriculture. And if you want to hear more from us, please tune in to any of our 34 podcasts and over 300 reports from across the world of Farms Food Future. In episode 31, we looked at the issue of social justice and the fight for decent livelihoods for small-scale farmers in developing countries. In episode 32, we rifle through the world of insects as an alternative protein source for humans and livestock. And in episode 33, we looked at the issue of farming and resilience building. Next month, in episode 35, our focus turns to renewable energy and infrastructure in Africa with guest presenter Bakari Kulibali. Up next, we hear from Virginia in Nigeria. Agriculture is a fundamental part of good nutrition. The sector is responsible for ensuring safe and sustainable food production. Small-scale farmers play a crucial role by producing most of the food that we eat. But for many of them, the need for nutritious agriculture starts at home. Virginia Benson is a 32-year-old farmer and mother from Nigeria. She not only needs food to sell, but also foods that will help her children get the nutrients they need. Life ND is a project that does just that. 
It works with the Nigerian government to promote nutrition in agribusiness enterprise development. Kingsley Alossi talked with Virginia about what nutrition means for her. They discussed its impact on her family and business, and we hear about some new dishes she's making. Listen up as she tells us how nutrition changed her perspective on the business side of agriculture. As a farmer, the knowledge about nutrition is very important. Farming is also about agriculture and it is the production of food, nutrition, and also about food and how the body uses it. As a farmer, I can help make nutritional, nutritious food available to my family and other consumers by cultivating food quality and nutritious crops. I have a little explanation here. This uh, Irish potato is a proteinous fruit which we have been using so very much in my farm because we use it for our jollof rice. The way we make use of it, we slice it, use it together in our salad to make our food nutritious and to balance our diet. So before, we have been eating uh, rice ordinary, overlooking those things. Even I myself, before life ended, introduced this potato to us. I've been thinking that potato is meant for the northern side, where they can only plant it there, and it will grow for them and bear a seed. But life ending have made us know that potato, we can even plant it in our own land here and harvest it, use it for our food nutrition and make some cells. Why is it important to discuss nutrition? from a farm to fork approach? From farm to fork means all the processes the food goes through before it is consumed. From production, processing, distribution, and finally consumption. Nutrition must be incorporated into all aspects of the value chain, starting with nutrient-rich soils that will improve the quality of the crops and exceeding across the food system to other elements like food safety, food processing, food fortification, proper food preparation and consumption in households. What are the challenges? and opportunities to mainstream nutrition in your activities? Land is one of our major challenge because that is the place where we will cultivate so big and have a larger crops. If we can harvest them, if we can harvest our cucumber, five bags, and our uh, vegetables, and still get what we are getting, if we have more of land, a larger one, it will help us to plant more. The opportunities is uh, the farm we are into, it has helped us because we have the opportunity to farm and, uh, and they produce, we sell them and get money. So it is helping me because when I plug those, uh, those my cucumber seed, and harvest this my potato and go to market, I sell them to help me to buy things that I cannot be able to afford. So I cannot eat them and look healthy. And uh, to balance my diet, all these nutritional vegetables life ending have provided to us 
has helped us to grow healthy. And me and, me and my baby will look healthy. And my children will eat very well from them. So that is why I say that the opportunities is many, which I cannot be mentioned. With these little ones, I've been given and this reason. So that is to show that the opportunities there has created more important things in my family. So thank you. In addition to veggies, Virginia received chickens to raise and learned about practices like composting and pest control. The project does what it can to help her and other farmers in sustaining their nutritious crops and keeping their families and their health on track. Up next, we talk to Makbula Abdallah El Ahwad in Sudan. You're listening to Farms Food Future. In Sudan, IFAD is funding the Integrated Agricultural and Marketing Development Project along with the government of Sudan and the private sector. The project's goal is to reduce poverty and enhance food security in poor rural households. Working in 129 villages, it covers 27,000 households and has been running since 2008. Our reporter, Mohamed Adam, spoke to Makbula Abdallah Elwada, one of the beneficiaries of the project from the Umwaraba locality in North Kadafan state. The project supported Makbula to build a home garden around her house and provided her with the technical support and knowledge needed to guarantee sustainable production of nutritious vegetables. <laughs> My name is Makbula Abdullah Awad. I'm married and my husband is blind. I have eight children, four boys and four girls. In the past, I used to grow okra and cucumber in a small area around the house in a traditional manner. We never used to grow many crops, only simple things. We didn't grow any vegetables or anything like that. But after the project, they gave us a variety of seedlings, such as okra, watermelon, cucumber, tomatoes, eggplant, and pumpkin. We were trained on how to plant them and how to prepare the land for cultivation and how to fight pests. I did all of this by myself. Thank God I did it well and the crops supported my children. During the first year, I benefited financially from selling some of the produce and used the money to support my daughter's education and pay their tuition fees. My sons were not working due to COVID-19, but thank God, the harvest really supported us well. During the second year of the project, they trained us on how to make garden rows in a home garden around the house. Before, we used to make the rows differently, and it didn't yield the expected results. But now, we learned new techniques and it resulted in greater success. I invested the money I made from the second year harvest in selling children's clothes and buying flour for the family bakery. We also benefited a lot from the project when it comes to nutrition, especially for my children who used to suffer from low blood count. I also take care of my father-in-law who lives with us in the house. When I come back home from working in the farm, I go to the home garden and collect some vegetables to cook. Before, I lack the information and the means to buy vegetables. I'm happy that now I can prepare a nutritious meal with an assortment of vegetables. Because I also benefit financially from this project, which allow me to buy a variety of food. Now, 
We eat different kinds of green salad made of tomatoes, roca, and eggplant. We cook okra, which we cultivated, and we fill the table with different types of food. In the past, we didn't have information about the importance of nutritious meals and eating vegetables. The nutrition classes I took as part of the project, I learned how to make jam out of the watermelon that I grew. I also make pumpkin paste and I cook legumes. I benefited a lot from this project in gaining knowledge and sharing this knowledge among my community in the meetings. I would like to thank them and wish them all the best. My children had low blood count due to malnutrition, and I used to take them to the hospital to take vitamins. But now, because they eat a lot of vegetables, they feel better and are not sick anymore. The produce from the home garden contributed to filling the nutritious gap for my children when they come back from a long day of hard work in the farms. Now, we can prepare quick meals from the food we grow. I am grateful for this project. That was Makbula Abdallah El Ahwad from Sudan. Coming up, we move on from nutrition to something a little different. We're going to head down to Lesotho, where some interesting research has been going on. You're listening to Farms Food Future, episode 34, and I'm Linda Odiambo in Nairobi with Brian Thompson in Rome. In Lesotho, livestock contributes towards 75% of agricultural output, with an estimated total number of livestock of 4 million, of which 75% consists of sheep and goats on approximately 1.8 million hectares of rangeland. This number of animals and an unequal geographic distribution leads to unregulated and excessive pressure on Lesotho's ragelands and are a major cause of land degradation. Although Lesotho's contribution to climate change is limited, agriculture is the second largest emitter of greenhouse gases, with 35% of the country's total emissions. So with this in mind, Improved rangeland management and improved livestock feed can significantly reduce the emission intensity of livestock. Analysts from IFAD and its sister UN agency FAO are using the Global Livestock Environmental Assessment Model Interactive, or GLEAM-I, to calculate the country's current livestock sector-based emissions. Along with that, they're also using another innovative system called the Tool for Agroecology Performance Evaluation, or TAPE. Developed by FAO, it's used as well to analyse IFAD's Regeneration of Landscapes and Livelihoods, or Role Project, in Lesotho. Here, it looks at the development of agroecology in Lesotho, and via GLEMI, they're looking at potential reductions in emissions achievable through the Role Project. Erica Doro has been working on all of this, and I asked her for some more background on the projects in Lesotho. The assessment performed with Glimai suggests that it is indeed possible for Roe to boost its livestock production while at the same time reducing its contribution to GAG emissions. In particular, improved rangeland management and increased quantity and quality of feed can significantly reduce the emission intensity of livestock. Uh, furthermore, improved animal health, breeding and manure management can also have positive environmental impacts and can lead to enhanced production efficiency. 
So what, what did we learn about agroecological practices through the TAPE tool? So uh, TAPE was applied to the road project to inform on the development of agroecology in Lesotho. And the poor results that were achieved across the 10 elements of agroecology on which TAPE is built reveal that farms in Lesotho, on average, are not well diversified in terms of crops, livestock and natural vegetation, as well as in terms of income-generating activities. Furthermore, lack of stability in income and agricultural production, limited marketing opportunities and lack of savings and insurance schemes make farmers less resilient to the adverse impact of natural and economic shocks and stresses. On top of this, working conditions in agriculture are harsh due to low level of productivity and persisting social inequalities, and women are not much involved in income-generating activities and have limited access to land, natural resources and services. Finally, the government has no efficient system in place to empower producers to access local markets and involve them in the governance of natural resources. All of this is further aggravated by the lack of horizontal networks for the transfer of knowledge on agroecological practices and principles. So, what, what changes are being implemented as a result to do development better? So, Lesotho um, is a country that is particularly subject to, uh, to extreme climate, climate events, in particular frequent droughts, heavy rains and crop diseases, which often escalate in food crisis. And hence, it is indeed in need of a holistic approach that is able to nourish the resilience of local communities to both environmental shocks and market failures. In this context, TAPE has indicated that the farms that are transitioning to agroecology are more productive, more rentable and more resilient, which provides a strong justification to promote agroecological practices. In terms of food security, these farms are more aware of appropriate nutrition practices and rely more on local varieties and breeds. In short, diversity is the watchword. Higher diversity can be achieved by promoting native and stress-resistant crops, supporting sustainable horticulture and raising local breeds, also generating positive ecosystem services and promoting biodiversity through conservation techniques such as mulching or green manure and biomass production. Finally, agricultural systems foster the integration of traditional values in dietary choices and empower producers, especially women and youth, in terms of dignity of work, decision-making and political representation. For such an agricultural mindset to thrive, innovation should be easily replicable with the use of local materials and knowledge should be transferred horizontally from farmers to farmers. Such networks can support the creation of facilities for local and territorial markets where producers can easily sell their products at a fair price, hence improving the competitiveness of Lesotho's food systems. Uh, in terms of livestock, uh, Glimai suggested a combination of measures that would uh, ultimately uh, increase the productivity and reduce GHG emissions. Better accessibility and quality of animal health services and vaccination came out as crucial practices to reduce mortality rates and increase milk, meat and fiber production. Furthermore, developing stress-tolerant maize varieties that can withstand water scarcity and mature early, as well as readjusting crop calendars, can improve the availability and quality of fodder crops. Pasture resting, rotational grazing, water conservation and manure management are some other recommended practices that can contribute to a more circular and sustainable bioeconomy. So finally, how are these tools developed by FAO actually innovative? So starting with uh, Glimai, uh, it is important to note that most uh, GAG accounting tools related to the livestock sector perform a carbon assessment simply by multiplying the number of animals by an emission factor. However, the Global Livestock Environmental Assessment Model Interactive, GLIMAI, goes a step farther. It is based on the IPCC Tier 2 methodology, 
it adopts a life cycle approach, calculating emissions from the production to the farm gate, and estimates the mitigation potential of technical improvements in herd, feed, and manure management. Glimai can test different scenarios and identify the most efficient measures in terms of productivity enhancement and reduction of GHG emissions. So uh, talking instead about the tool for agroecology performance evaluation, TAPE, um, this tool is an innovative framework for consolidating global evidence on how agroecology supports the transformation to more sustainable food systems. Based on various existing frameworks, it operationalizes the 10 elements of agroecology defined by FAO to measure the multi-dimensional sustainability of agricultural systems. To do so, it applies a stepwise approach at the households or farm level, but can also provide results at a community and territorial scale. The tool is also adaptable to local contexts and languages and is flexible to be complemented with other methodologies or indicators. It was designed to remain simple and to require minimum training and data while still producing robust results. That was Erica Doro. Now on to our second of a four-part series on an exciting initiative taken on by IFAD in nine countries, Youth Agribusiness Hubs. This is Farms Foods Future. I'm Brian Thompson in Rome with Linda Odiambo in Nairobi. Our next guest is Andrew Gashayija, Managing Coordinator for the Youth Agribusiness Hub in Rwanda. After Raul Antao from IFAD came on board last month to introduce us to the hubs, Andrew joins us now to dive deeper into the details of how the hubs operate on the ground. Ian Smith asked Andrew when the Rwanda Agribusiness Hub opened. Uh, the hub is, is not a physical space. Uh, there are physical spaces that are hosting the hub beneficiaries. But the hub itself is a network of partners um, and, and services that are connected to each other, all geared towards uh, creating uh, opportunities for youth employment in agribusiness. Uh, but the, the different uh, satellite centers that are hosting the hub beneficiaries are the partnering uh, uh, technical colleges that are providing hands-on uh, uh, technical vocational skills in agribusiness, uh, together with the different agribusiness industries and companies. So these are all coordinated uh, at, the, at the hub um, central coordination office, which is at Kilimo Trust, yeah, in partnership with the implementing partners. Perfect. And when did it open? When did this agribusiness hub open? So the, the launch of RS was in July 2020. Uh, it was in middle of COVID. Uh, but uh, the starting of that kicked off so many things uh, because as an agribusiness uh, program, we had to know which value chains do we focus on. So these value chains, we, 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 we identified them, ranked them, and then uh, uh, we had to also conduct uh, a detailed labor market study to know which uh, opportunities uh, across the different segments of each of the selected value chains. So these value chains, we, 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 we identified them, ranked them, and then uh, uh, we had to also conduct uh, a detailed labor market study to know which uh, opportunities uh, across the different segments of each of the selected value chains. Uh, but even with those um, opportunities, 
we had to know which um, uh, what are the labor demands out there in employers what do they need employers in these um, in these opportunities what are those what do they need what are the skill gaps and uh, and then uh, we had to design courses uh, to basically respond to those labor demands and the skill gaps uh, these ones were meant to equip um, youth with the technical and entrepreneurial skills that are required for them to take advantage of identified opportunities. And uh, so far we have three uh, technical and vocational education and, uh, training colleges that are partnering with us in the providing of the technical skills for youth. How many youth have participated in the program so far? We have 344 in the ongoing trainings, which started about two months ago. Uh, the next cohort is coming uh, in, in August this year. Uh, so in other words, all the 654, we selected those who met the, the, the requirements. The first group of 344 are in the, in the ongoing training. The second group is coming in August. As you move towards the graduation of your first class later this year, what are the biggest challenges that you're facing so far and you expect to continue facing for the immediate future? Um, the first challenge, of course, is that uh, it was the first time to, to use this approach uh, for us. And uh, even for we haven't had this approach, at least in Rwanda. So it was uh, quite a lot of learning and, you know, trying so many times on so many things and uh, just getting these youth from their communities itself was, was not an easy task. It was in the middle of COVID, having them to con apply. Uh, we had to really uh, find ways of making sure that they have access to this information and they apply. So COVID, COVID restrictions, movement, uh, and uh, basically the preventing measures of COVID spread uh, were the, the major challenges. COVID, uh, COVID was the major issue. Why, you know, what have been your greatest successes so far? You know, what, what are you excited about? What, what are you looking forward to most about uh, this model and the, the hub in Rwanda? Uh, I think the greatest success is uh, training youth in what they most need. So the fact that we, we came up with the options that uh, came from the labor market itself was a breakthrough for us. And uh, some of them we didn't expect, but these were the findings. That was Andrew Gasaija team leader for the Rwanda Youth Agribusiness Hub. Next month, we'll talk to the people who scooped out the opportunities for youth to find green jobs through the agribusiness hubs. Up next, the final part of our mini-series with the Global Donor Platform. Now on to the fourth of our four-part mini-series from the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, which is currently hosted by IFAD. 
The platform is a network and a partnership of 40 influential donors, including international development agencies, financial institutions, intergovernmental organizations, and foundations. The membership aims to accelerate progress towards the sustainable development goals through collective influencing and knowledge sharing so that donors can successfully lobby for policies and increased funding in agriculture and rural development. In episode 34, we're in Rome at IFAD headquarters to speak with Satu Santala, Associate Vice President of the External Relations and Governance Department. IFAD is both a board member of the donor platform and host of the platform secretariat. Satu is familiar with it, having participated in its senior manager's meeting in her previous position at the Finnish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our reporter, Lise Saga, asks Satu about what issues keep her up at night. Well, it really is the state of our world. You know, alarm bells are going um, in all fronts. Um, you know, people suffering, the planet is suffering, and international divisions seem to be widening at a time when we really would need to get together and, and solve these problems together as a humankind. Uh, so that does keep me awake. And in particular, what keeps me awake and angers me too, I have to confess, is the fact that, you know, the people who contribute least to these problems are mostly the ones who suffer the most and they're most at risk, um, be it the rural poor, women, youth, indigenous peoples, people with disabilities, they usually are hardest hit during crisis. And I find it unacceptable that, you know, this day and age, <clears throat> we have increasing numbers of people who are going hungry or who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Um, so these are the things that really bother me a lot. Could you share some personal anecdotes or experiences, like first-hand experiences of what you've seen and how that has brought you to where you are today, since you are now in a position where you are able to do something about that? For me, one of the defining moments of my life has been that I had the incredible opportunity to work in Ethiopia at the age of 22 as a Red Cross youth volunteer for a year. And I was able to to interact with um, with people and, and learn about their lives and to see um, the incredible poverty that many people were living in, but also the incredible capacity that they had and the the, the pride um, they had in their lives. And it, and that has stuck with me. Uh, and and I often think back to people I I learned to know at that time. But also in terms of food insecurity. I was really struck by an experience when I worked in Tanzania, when I traveled, uh, there was a, a project preparation phase going on, uh, so some some identification missions and, and some fact-finding missions were happening, and um, we traveled to a very remote village, which was basically in a, like a wildlife sanctuary type of a, a region, very remote. Their lives were really incredibly uh, at risk constantly in terms of just food security. And uh, to think that communities like these, time after time, in, a, in an increasingly difficult climatic situation, um, and then, for example, right now with the increase in the price of fuels and transport from that remote village to anywhere, or for them to, to have uh, access to seeds and everything is really very increasingly difficult. So I'm thinking back to these kinds of communities, and really, as you say, they contribute the least to these problems and yet yeah, they they uh, 
um, receive the hit um, in a very significant way. Thank you. Uh, I can definitely see where your motivation comes from. And um, my next question is, so in these times of crisis, in food systems, but also beyond, why would you say the focus on rural development is still so important? Well, I wouldn't say it's only still important. I think it's increasingly important. You mentioned the, the food systems. And really, if you look at the world right now, it's increasingly clear that our food systems are not resilient. They're not uh, sustainable. If the whole world is dependent on just a few, maybe five, six food crops that come from maybe five to six countries predominantly, it's easy to understand that this is not sustainable. It cannot um, survive. So we really need more localized, uh, more, more diversified, inclusive uh, food production processing, distribution. So the systems we, we use for our food need to be more more resilient and therefore we need the rural people we need farmers enterprises in the rural areas to step up to this challenge secondly if you look at it from the point of view of the people it is important that we empower rural people to live their lives in dignity so to to give them better opportunities for livelihoods uh, be able to earn bigger incomes have better education and so on and of course that they themselves are able to produce enough food for their own tables so then that way we make their lives not only about survival, but really uh, that they can thrive, um, have better prospects for their future, especially the rural youth. Then also rural development is important from the point of view that um, if we if people can thrive in rural areas, um, that can reduce pressures on uh, the cities that are growing very fast in the global south, where people are looking for better opportunities. And this also connects to the pressures uh, for international migration. We know that the first move is usually from a rural area to an urban one. There has been really underinvestment in rural development and agriculture um, in the development space. And this trend has to be reversed in order to tackle the grave challenges we are now facing. And we really must invest in rural people and rural transformation. IFAD is hosting the Secretariat of the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development. So how do you see this relationship play a role in tackling the challenges that you've now described? Yeah, uh, it is very, it's a very uh, mutually beneficial relationship and, and a very important part uh, of how IFAD is tackling these challenges going forward. As I said, there really is the need to, in, to invest more uh, in uh, rural people and rural transformation, but also to invest better um, and to make sure that the impact is as great as possible. Um, so this platform really is a way to connect donors uh, who are working uh, on rural development uh, and to, to make it easier to work together. Um, no institution or country can solve these enormous problems on their own. Um, and the worst we could do is that we all go in different directions or have different solutions and don't share information and coordinate our, our activities. So the pl platform has really grown out of uh, the need to, to seek solutions together and to exchange and to learn from each other and to advocate jointly um, for, for these issues. Um, for IFAD, um, the, hosting the platform, uh, as I said, really complements our work in a, in a good way. Um, and we do believe that it's, uh, it's a sort of mutually beneficial arrangement. It's valuable 
possible for IFAD to be involved in convening and coordinating donors through the work of the platform. Um, and of course, since our um, work is entirely in the space of rural development, we also bring our own operational knowledge and experience to the work uh, of the platform. Um, also, many of IFAD's uh, member states are members of the platform as well, and we see, uh, of course, potential for involving even more. Um, in the current global situation, I would really like to see the donor platform to be a strong voice advocating for patient investments in rural development as one of the key elements in building more resilient and sustainable food systems. Mm, these, import these investments are so important, um, especially so that uh, the, the, the poor countries uh, would be less vulnerable and countries and communities would be less vulnerable to the many crises that are hitting them one after another. Um, and I'm sure we'll continue doing so going forward so that we would, won't always go from, uh, you know, that communities would not always be in the need of humanitarian assistance the minute something strikes. What do you see as the potential for the future of this platform? Um, I think, um, especially right now, with so much activity around the food crisis and kind of um, a lot of uh, a lot of partners kind of realizing that that there that so much work is needs to be done and this is an important matter. Um, I I do think that there's a lot of value in the platform as an. A, a a, a sort of a platform for exchange uh, between donors on what would be the right way forward um, and also kind of coordinating also some of those advocacy efforts. I, I really think that would be a valuable uh, and, and I think there is no really other platform that can do, can convene around these issues in the same way. And it's, it's a sort of an open discussion space. And I think that's a really valuable thing. That was Santu Santala, IFAD's Associate Vice President of the External Relations and Governance Department. You can find out more about the Global Donor Platform at www.donorplatform.org. And coming up in our last point of call for this podcast, we are heading over to the state of Tamil Nadu in India. You're listening to Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Linda Odiambo with Brian Thompson. It's time to join the lovely people here at IFAD who look at how we make the most of investing in farming communities. IFAD's Research and Impact Assessment Division makes sure we learn as much as we can from the way we work. Through in-depth, on-the-ground research, they measure the project's impact on incomes, productivity, women, and much, much more. In this podcast, we're turning our attention to IFAD's work in Tamil Nadu in India. The post-tsunami sustainable livelihoods program covers the coastal districts in this Indian state, which was severely affected by the devastating tsunami back in 2004. I spoke with Arthur Mabisu, he told me about the issues people are facing in the region. Well, as, as with many rural uh, coastal areas, these are people who really are struggling to address issues of uh, shocks, both, first of all, the tsunami, but also uh, increasingly cyclones that uh, affect their, you know, their assets, uh, both their productive assets, such as boats, which they use for fishing, but also uh, the, their community buildings and, and, and homes. And so really main challenges there really being about resilience and it, resilience to climate change, 
and then as well as issues around uh, really trying to find different types of livelihoods to make sure that they, they have the basic necessities for their families. What are the, the, the practices, the policies that IFAD has supported to, to, to resolve these issues? Well, IFAD really came in with a long-term perspective um, with respect to really building the people's livelihoods, providing assets and access to, to finance. And so one of the main things that the project did was to work with self-help groups uh, and uh, fish landing women, mostly targeting women that were in the fish value chain and providing access to, to you know, loans that enabled them to, to get out of um, a vicious cycle of, of borrowing from highly usurious um, loans. So these were money lenders that really charged high interest rates. And so what IFA did was to first take them out of that cycle then allow them to invest in in their you know businesses micro enterprises slowly building you know savings incomes and then also introducing insurance to to safeguard their their assets in case of of various uh, shocks including cyclones as i mentioned so i think over the years and this was a long standing project that lasted 11 years so over the years these women began to really see an increase in their incomes their asset holdings and really a, a huge increase in, in market participation, which really led to, to really, uh, you know, transformative changes, as well as empowering women uh, with respect to, you know, engaging in, in markets that they previously weren't able to really engage in. How did you tailor your research methods to this particular situation? So with respect to our research and the methods we used, we effectively went in and identified those uh, self-help group, uh, groups that had benefited from the project, and then also went into other communities, the, the adjacent communities where the project had not uh, intervened, and looked for similar self-help groups to, to make sure we had a comparable group of, of women who were somehow linked to, to financial services through the self-help groups. And then what we did was to then you know, conduct in interviews, household survey interviews with the, the various uh, women and, and their households and capture information on their incomes, on their you know, enterprises, as well as you know, their access to, to various services, including uh, loans and, and, and insurance services. And then through our statistical analysis, we're able to then estimate what was the impact and, and what, what kind of uh, you know, benefits that the, the beneficiaries actually received. With all that done, Arthur, what were the main lessons learned from this project? Well, I think there were several lessons learned. Uh, the first main lesson really is that, you know, focusing on the provision of, of financial services to, to women's groups can really go a long way in terms of enabling them to invest in their assets and to actually increase their, 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 their production and marketing. And particularly with respect to the fish value chain, uh, women who are involved in selling or vending their fish, we saw a remarkable increase of uh, more than 90% increase in, in sales revenues compared to those who are not benefiting from the project. And also these women began to have a, a greater control over their income 
really signaling the impact that you can also have with respect to women's empowerment. So I think this was one of the, the key areas. But I think also, interestingly, the, the fact that, you know, the project had lasted so long, we did see a modest increase in, in resilience to the shocks that these communities continually face. So I think these were the key lessons learned from, from the analysis. Thanks to Arthur Mabisu telling us all about IFAD's work in Tamil Nadu. All of this in-depth research will be used for better project design and improved corporate learning and accountability. And in September, the results from a selection of 24 projects active between 2019 to 2021 will be pulled together to see how effective IFAD is overall in fulfilling its mission. Next month, we will be talking to Tisson Songserm Sawaz on projects in Kenya. And that brings us to the end of podcast 34. Thanks to our fabulous producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti. Also our contributors that include Bakari Kulabali in Dakar, Mohamed Adam in Cairo, and Ian Smith along with Alison Lecce in New York, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcast. Next month, in episode 35, we'll be talking about renewable energy and infrastructure in rural communities in Africa. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address. And we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform. And please rate us. We'll be back at the end of August with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Lindo Diambo and the team here at EFERD, thanks, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.